Hey, hey, May. Huh? You think we should do a Science Brunch episode? Uh, okay. Welcome to Science Brunch. We are overly caffeinated and ready to talk about lots of science things. And some of us have been stuck in traffic, so just a little, a little bit. excited. Yes. <laughs> We're inside a tent in May's basement. Mm. You know what I was thinking? Because it's it's a little tent and it's got blankets everywhere to make it sound nice for everybody. Uh-huh. You know what would really suck? Uh. Is if I farted in here. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Noted. Well, anyway, today we're talking about Rosalind Franklin, mm-hmm. one of my favorite people. But before we do that, I think you have something about frogs to tell me. Yes. So um, you may not know this, but our engineer and editor, Jed Kim, is, or at least until recently, was a reporter on the environment for KPCC, our local public radio station here in Los Angeles. And he recently did a story on the Coquille frogs, which are these tiny little frogs that come originally from Puerto Rico, I believe. But they are so loud. <laughs> they pack a punch. <laughs> they pack a punch. So the, the I think it's the males only make the call. And the sound here, we're just going to have to listen to it. Ow. It's so loud. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) So you can hear in the background that there's a ton of Mm. these frogs, right? And so they all sing at once, basically, and people hate them. Uh, Well, Well, they do this at night, too. I mean, people are trying to sleep. Yes, it's at night. People are trying to sleep. Yeah. And so they originated in Puerto Rico. They also are in Hawaii, and... Some of the islands in Hawaii are still trying to battle and try to keep them off certain islands because they're such a nuisance that tourists will complain because they can't sleep um, because it's too loud at night. And of course, it's you know really annoying if you live there too, twenty four seven. Like car alarms or something. Which exactly. Is, yeah, like... And and in his story, he actually mentions that there there were some here in Los Angeles, and people heard them and thought that it was someone's car alarm just going off the entire night. Mm-hmm. And so they called the cops and. You know, there's this whole thing. So there's this effort here to try to keep them out. And the way that they get in is, you know, a lot of plants and nurseries originate in Hawaii. Right. They're brought over here to Los Angeles to be sold. Check your potted plants, people. Yeah, except they're so tiny. They're mm. like the size of a quarter. And, you know, they're really hard to find. And so a bunch of these scientists will go into the nursery and try to, like, cull, basically, mm-hmm. and just catch as many as they can. But it's just, like, not a good they still get through. And it's been raining so much recently because of El Nino. I'm sure the drought probably helps a little bit because... I think no? maybe, but I think they also, they they don't hatch as tadpoles. They hatch as tiny little, like, froglets. Froglets? So, yeah, so they don't even need... <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> I know. They sound so cute, but they're also very loud. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, my God. That is terrible. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> So anyway, that's the last time I promote Jed on this show. <laughs> you know, I would feel so conflicted if there was one right outside my window or something. Because, yeah, this, that's what people are dealing with. They're, like, calling the cops. They're, like, my neighbor is trying to drive me insane by playing this noise. Yeah. I've heard of that kind of complaint. Someone was blaming it on someone trying, actually, deliberately playing some kind of loud noise all night. Like, not even a car alarm. I was like, they're doing it on purpose with just some kind of speaker <laughs> in my yard. It's like, no, it's a, it's an animal. God, I would just... <laughs> I would I would thirst for blood. I would be like, "That's true." I'm going to kill you. Well, if you've ever had a mockingbird, like outside, I have not. Oh my god, 
It's so bad. <laughs> it happened to us here. And, and, you know, they're just, you know, it's like midnight. And they're like, it's a wonderful morning. Oh, I'm going to sing. And they just go on and on and on. I and have had is, parrots outside my window. But it's not a constant noise. So you can't ever get yeah, used to it. And yeah. the, the worst thing Nothing is, will drown it is when they imitate car alarms. Oh, God. Because <laughs> <laughs> then you're like, oh, it's the most annoying animal in the world. I love this sound. It's Imitating wonderful. the most annoying thing in the world. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I, there was uh, my old apartment. There was a palm tree in front that had a very you know, robust community of those green parrots that would mm. just have very interesting conversations. <laughs> They're just out there just talking, talking, talking. And then there was one who would just sit. I don't know. Maybe he was like the parrot pariah or something, but he would not be in the tree. He'd be on a streetlight mm-hmm. all by himself and just going, ah! <laughs> Every five seconds or so, and one time I was out going out to my car, and I, you know, I'd heard him all morning, and I went, I looked at him, and I was like, "Please stop!" Was like, I tried, I tried to engage with him. You tried to reason with it him. It didn't work. It didn't work. But yeah, and uh, a friend of mine had crows outside of her window. Uh, yeah. And she was just telling me she was at her wit's end, and she was going to get a super soaker or something, and just, you know hang out the window and just spray them all so that they would hopefully not want to be on the tree branch that was right outside her window in the yeah. future basically just like just associate this tree branch with terrible things please go away <laughs> so she's telling me her plan and i went i uh, maybe but you might want to not let them see your face yeah because they remember faces yeah. they're really smart and you park on the street so you're gonna have to walk it basically in front of them to get to your car. And if they saw you do that to them, you know, just 10 minutes before or something that could, I don't know, maybe they'll gang up and kill <laughs> yeah, you. And attack yeah. you or something. Well, the, or crazy, drop stuff the craziest on you part or... about that research is that not only do they remember faces, but they pass down that knowledge to the next generation. What? Yeah. Maybe so I there was that. that study on, on, I can't remember what college it was, but on campus, they would like walk around. I think it was with like clown masks or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And then they would, you know, do this thing where they would annoy the birds so that the birds would learn to like hate certain masks. And then they found out that in tracking those birds, that later birds who had never seen the masks themselves wow. were also imitating that. Like, oh, this is an enemy. That's trippy. That's scary. Yeah. That means they're like talking to each other, you yeah. guys, and yeah. they're like planning. Yeah, I mean, if when they I told, had opposable thumbs, we'd all be screwed. When I told this girl that, I said, "Well, don't let them see your face; they'll remember you, and they yeah. won't be happy about it." She was so creeped out because she didn't know <laughs> about this at all. So she was like, "Stop it! You're you're kidding me." She thought I was just totally messing with her, <laughs> trying to scare her or something. And I was like, "No, I'm 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 actually serious. I'm not trying to just you know." tease you they will remember you <laughs> she she was I, she didn't do it because she was so creeped out <laughs> she was so scared <laughs> She's like fine i'll just live like, oh my god they're coming for me ah <laughs> so no that's awesome so, yeah wildlife so, yeah can in, be annoying yeah in some nature is <laughs> terribly annoying <laughs> the end do, 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 do. <laughs> you're welcome everyone <laughs> so rosalind yes rosalind franklin who we have been talking, referring to as Rosie or Roz, as we were discussing. <laughs> I like Roz. This. Yes. Yeah. Th- so did she. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. Yes. I found out that she was fine going by Roz or Rosalind, but the only thing she did not want to go by was Rosie. 
It sounds like she had because she was named after a grandmother, I think it was, mm. and so that that a it was you know someone else was Rosie. If someone called her that, you'd be like that's what oh, you know, got that's it. what she's called. But also, it sounds like she probably just didn't really like it because someone did ask her once which she preferred. She was like anything but Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but uh, but guess what? Mm. Everyone at King's College where she did her work with DNA, with crystallography and DNA. Guess what? Everybody called her <sighs> behind her back. Of course, Rosie. And guess what uh, Watson referred to her as in his in his book, The Double Helix? Sweet cheeks. Rosie. Oh. <laughs> I, I just, Would she have been happier with sweet uh, cheeks? Probably. <laughs> Equally insulting. Yeah. Yeah. So so our good friend Roz, mm-hmm. Roz was born on July 25th in 1920. Okay. Started the Roaring Twenties. Starting off well. Yes. Women had just gotten the vote. In Notting Hill. England, which is a place that a movie is called, so that's all I know about it. <laughs> I think it's a terrible movie, isn't I it? I think it's where... Wait. Oh, my God. Isn't it? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it. <laughs> Who is not it again? Julia... <laughs> Julia Roberts and Hugh? Hugh Grant, right? Uh, Hugh Grant, yes. Yes. So Hugh Grant lives there. That's all I know. Or, he, you know... In whatever. the movie? And <laughs> is she's like know. a movie star? I don't know. I don't know. Who cares? <sighs> anyway, so she was... Sounds like she was always really precocious. Mm. Um, her aunt, who ter- was will come up later because she sounds like an awesome lady, uh, was talking about her when Rosalind was six. Her, her aunt said, Rosalind is alarmingly clever. <laughs> she spends all her time doing arithmetic for pleasure and invariably gets her sums right. I should have oh, said it with no. an English accent. I'm sorry. <laughs> Rosalind is alarmingly clever. I feel like this is what a lot of parents think. They're like, oh, no, (laughs) my kid's smart. This is bad. Yeah, she sounds like she was always just very exact and really liked things, was very logical, Hmm. just liked everything to make sense. And when she was 15, she decided she wanted to be a scientist. Wow. So in school, she was great at science, great at math, great at languages, took Latin, took French, loved, loved it. The only thing she was terrible at was music class. <laughs> her teacher seriously talked to her parents at one point and was like, I think she might not hear very well. <laughs> or maybe she has tonsillitis. I mean, I'm guessing it was like a chorus, a vocal class. Yeah. So maybe she was tone deaf. I'm just assuming, just, just based on that. Maybe she just had no... <laughs> Did she enjoy music anyway? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but she was just terrible at it. Um do you know anyone who's tone deaf? Just absolutely tone deaf? I was, was going to volunteer myself. No. I mean, no. Come on. I guess I'm not tone Can deaf. Can you sing Mary Had a Little Lamb? Probably. Probably. I, my, I gran- my grandfather was absolutely tone deaf. Really? He could not sing Mary Had a Little Lamb. He just couldn't hear that it was different. Like, I'll do, try to do an impression. It's kind of uh. hard because I'm not tone deaf. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know perfect pitch or anything, but he would just kind of go, Mary had a little lamb. I'm not kidding. <laughs> it was really weird. He's like, what is music? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that's, well, <laughs> the only example I can think of is my my grandfather. I'm not sure he was tone deaf. I don't remember ever really hearing him sing, but he uh, tried to play the trombone for us a couple times, and he was uh, a pastor, so he tried to play him, Rescue the Perishing, which turned out to be very ironic. <laughs> <laughs> but he would play the trombone, and it was like, you know, a trombone already sounds sad. Mm-hmm. And he, it was just like the worst rendition. <laughs> yeah, it was like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it was a, <laughs> that fish in Finding Nemo Dory, <laughs> like imitating <laughs> whales. <laughs> Ew, you. 
no. That's basically what it sounded like. So I don't know. I mean, I always kind of assumed like maybe he can't hear because afterwards he was always like, yeah, wasn't that great? And we're all like, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Trombones especially, you have to really be able to hear it because, I mean, you have to have the muscle memory of where the positions are along the slide. But yeah, you have to be able to adjust really fast. Yeah, so we we would always request performances from him and it was never for the reason that he wanted. Like we just wanted to laugh. (laughs) It was a good sport. (laughs) Oh man, so... So Roz uh, passes the examination for admission to Cambridge, uh, 1938. This starts a family drama because her dad, although is very progressive in some ways, is not a big fan of women going to college, even his own daughter. Oh, dad. So Rosalind's aunt, the same one who was like, this girl is smart. Said, <laughs> Dangerously smart. Yeah. She was just like, uh, no, she's going and I will pay for it. Was this his sister? Uh, yes, I, I'll, I'll double check on that. But yes, I think so. Okay. She's like, uh-uh. No, she's going. Give me a break, buddy. This is what ants are for. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome auntie. So uh, so she stepped in and then and then uh, Roz's mother also was like, you know what? I'm with them. It was just like all the good ladies just ganged up on him. It was like, uh-uh. She is going. So anyway, so she goes, graduates in 1941, starts work on her doctorate. And she, because it's wartime now, mm-hmm. she focuses her research on coal and charcoal and how to use them most efficiently. All so right. it's very war-relevant research, which actually reminds me, did you hear that Mary Roach's next book is about uh, war research, like defense research? Really? It's called Grunt. <laughs> she always has the best titles. I know. <laughs> I have, the only one that was not one word was Packing for Mars, because there was just no way to do that, I guess. Huh. But um, That sounds interesting. Yes, yeah, so I'm really excited. Her book tour is this summer. So I'm, I'm really excited. All right, we'll look, for, we'll look for appearances in L.A. But yes, anyway. So she did really great work there. Uh, she gets her Ph.D., and then she goes to, to France. She goes to Paris mm. because she took French. She loved French. She was a big Francophile. She thought it was fantastic over there, loved the culture, loved the food. So she goes over there, and that's where she did a lot, started working on X-ray crystallography, which is essentially taking photos of things with x-rays instead of light rays okay so you just bombard something with x-rays and you see where they go and it kind of depending on how many x-rays hit it it is where you get varying levels of exposure so you get this shape and this was kind of a new field like x-rays marie curie dealt with x-rays she was the first one to make an x-ray mobile unit during world war Mm one so this was kind of newish science but uh, yeah so people aren't wearing uh, protective gear once again (laughs) we're talking about not protecting oneself from these very harmful rays. They are ionizing radiation. They are bad for you. They're bad for you. <laughs> so yeah. Whoops. <clears throat> but anyway, so so she's working there. She she pioneered the use of this method for analyzing complex and unorganized matter because it was usually used for crystals to mm-hmm. look at these very, very highly ordered structures. But she started looking at biological things like DNA. So her postdoctoral work, x-ray crystallography, she eventually goes back to London to King's College. So that's where a lot of the DNA stuff is happening. So she goes to King's College. She gets a job there. She's assigned to work on DNA with a graduate student. And she assumes that it's her own project, which it mostly was. But there was this weird miscommunication. So the lab director said, OK, Rosalind, you're working on DNA. Here's this graduate student who will who work with you on it. You know, go, go forward and do that on vacation at the time was Maurice Wilkins, who is going to be a very important character in this story in a second here. All right. Maurice Wilkins was on vacation. So he comes back and Rosalind's there. Mm-hmm. He never gets a full memo about what the dealio is. So he assumes that Rosalind works for him. Okay. And it's kind of his assistant. 
Uh-huh. But Rosalind was told, this is your DNA project. Just do it. Here's this graduate student to work mm. under you. So there was this really weird dynamic happening. And apparently the lab director just kind of never fixed it. It sounds like, or maybe just got off on the wrong foot and there's just nothing that could be done about it or something. We're going to be wading into some opinion and, so, you know, my own opinion about what it sounds like happened. But anyway, for sure there was a miscommunication uh-huh. and was never apparently resolved. And <laughs> On top of that, uh, Rosalind was a very direct person. You know, she really looked you in the eye and said things very matter-of-factly. She, n- not that she was not friendly. I mean, a lot of people thought that she was, you know, really fun and everything. But she was just very, oh, well, here's how we're doing this. La, 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 la. Here we go. She was just very to the point. Yeah, not demurring. Yeah, um, which, yeah, maybe just for the time was just really shocking to some people just outright from the get-go. But, and, but on top of that, Maurice Wilkins was the complete opposite of that. He was really shy, mm. really passive. So it sounds like he was just, with her, really passive-aggressive. So yeah, this, I, this, this is kind of where you start, you know, oh, let's call her Rosie behind her back because she doesn't like being called Rosie. <laughs> really? I rolled my eyes. <laughs> oh my God. can't see me, but I did. So, so yeah, so that's, that's not good. But anyway, so, so she's working with x-ray diffraction, with DNA. She adjusted the equipment to produce an extremely fine beam of x-rays. So she's kind of, she just, she's so good with physics. Mm-hmm. She's so good with just being exact. So she's taking this, uh, this technique and just really perfecting it. Uh, she extracted finer DNA fibers than ever, ever before, arranged them in parallel bundles. So she's getting really, really good data. She's just, she's on it. <laughs> she's amazing. So she she figured out that the conformation of DNA, the double helix, mm-hmm. depends on how hydrated the DNA is. So while they're trying to figure out what DNA looks like, a bunch of people are working on it. It's, you know, this big race to figure it out. So there's A DNA and there's B DNA, which is A DNA is when it's um, low, like there's not much water. And mm-hmm. B DNA is when there is more water around it. So they have in slightly different shapes. So that kind of was muddling the search for the the actual structure was because there's kind of two forms of it. And they were like, well, which one should we be looking at more closely? And how, how can they tell us, how can looking at both of these levels of hydration of, of DNA tell us how it's structured? So they're all working on it. So she's the one who figured out that there were two forms so that they look different based on how much water there is. And she calls them ADNA and BDNA. And um, she published a paper about ADNA before Watson and Crick, you know, figured out their system for the structure of B DNA. So it's like, it's getting all muddled. It's kind of weird. Mm. So this is kind of setting the stage. So now 1953, big year for DNA. This is when Watson and Crick published their model of DNA. But in January of that year, so we're going to just go month by month here. Uh-huh. January. Franklin figures out the DNA has two helices, which, so yeah, she figures that out. She starts to write papers about it. That's January. Sometime between then and March 6th is when Maurice Wilkins took one of the best photos or, you know, sorry, X-ray crystallography Uh data points and showed it to Watson and Crick. Ooh. So, yeah. (laughs) So in those two months... He showed them a photo that right. Rosie, Roz, oh, oh my, dare you? sorry, I'm so sorry, Roz. Yes. Okay. So I'm he taken. showed them that picture. It was called Photo 51 is kind of what the, the un- informal name it was for it. Hmm. He showed it to them without telling her. 
kind of just went into her lab and just took it you know just oh yeah here's this thing I thought you guys might like to see it kind well, of yeah clearly she so, was his assistant and you know and this is where it gets really muddy because some people are like no he had every right to do that because mm. he worked in that lab too and you know she was she was going to publish it so it's not like it was super super secret I think it was just it probably wouldn't have been so crappy if they had had a good relationship and right. it had been done kind of in good faith but because they already had all this animosity and because, you know, she's at King's College where she's not allowed to, to use the same lunchroom as all the men. You know, it's just it's the time. It's the fact that even given the time, they were pretty mean to her. Yeah. That it just it's just icky. I it, mean, it wasn't friendly. No, of course. I mean, some people will, will say that there was nothing ethically completely wrong with it. But let's just agree. It's kind of shady. Yes. and Passive aggressive. Yes. And just icky. OK. Anywho, March 6th. Rosalind submits two manuscripts to a crystallography uh, pub- publisher in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. So they accepted on March 6th. And this is one day before Watson and Crick c- completed their model of BDNA, the more hydrated one that you would find in cells. So that's, that's that one. Got it. March 7th, they finish it. March 8th is when uh, Wilkins, Maurice Wilkins, tells Franklin and Crick that, oh, guess what? Franklin's leaving King's College. So kind of full steam ahead. Oh, he tells he Watson t- and Crick. Yeah, he says, oh, oh guess what? Because she's thinking of leaving because she is just not happy there because right. things are so crappy. <laughs> so she starts, um, you know, moving to go somewhere else. And, and it, that was just makes it kind of even ickier for me is that Wilkins reaches out to Watson and Crick and says, hey, guess what? She's leaving. Ugh. Ugh, I know. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Yeah, it's clearly not cool. Yeah. So in mid-March, she leaves. So that was March 8th. He was like, hey, guess what, guys? She's leaving. So now we can really move forward and we don't have to worry about her because when she left in mid-March, one of the stipulations of her leaving and taking a different appointment at a Burbeck College where she was going to have her you know, own research lab was that she couldn't work on DNA anymore. What? Yeah. How is that an agreement? I don't know. So she was so unhappy that she was willing to cut ties with her revolutionary yeah with all of her really really good work yeah and research, she was like just i just want to just need to get out yeah oh god i mean she worked on coal she worked on dna and she's like you know what i'll work on something else probably i'm just assuming this is opinion that the opinion and alarm should go off <laughs> katie's opinion well, katie's opinion I, I mean i feel like it's probably safe to say that something was wrong like something was really wrong i mean for you to to make so much progress and mm-hmm. then decide I'm you know going to drop everything. Yeah, I'm going to wash my hands of this. Yeah. Go somewhere else. That doesn't happen for a good reason. Yeah. No. No. So, yeah. So, she she had her own research group at Burbeck. Yeah. And the, the head of King's was like, okay, you can go as long as you never touch DNA ever again. <laughs> I can't. I can't even what? believe this. Yeah, I, okay. I know. It's, it's crappy. Uh, so, April. So, that's mid-March. April 10th is when uh, Franklin hears about the model that Watson and Crick built and asks, and she said, oh, hey, can I see it? And now here's where I've, I've read conflicting things. So I'll just kind of tell you both things. Some people say that she saw it and was like, oh, my gosh, that just has to be right. It's so great, blah, 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 blah. And just, you know, completely agreed with it upon beholding it. But I've also read that she said once she left, it's very pretty, but how are they going to prove it? Because her... Her prerogative was evidence and mm-hmm. science and proving things, not just saying, hey, look at this really pretty model we made. <laughs> so had they had they based this on um, x-rays of DNA or had they like theorized that this is how it's probably structured? So the information that they had, and this is so funny because only a year before this was when we figured out what DNA actually does. 
We didn't even know that DNA was the genetic material. People thought it was going to be proteins and not DNA uh. because we did know that DNA was only made of the bases that are in the that we know now now know are in the middle. Right. Adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. Mm-hmm. So there's those. And we knew that the that there were phosphate groups and sugars. And they knew the um the like the amounts of each one. So they kind of knew, oh, so you have the same amount of phosphates and sugars and the bases you have whatever like two times as many because mm-hmm. you know um because each nucleotide like the actual building block is is one of each it's a phosphate group a sugar and then a base so that's that three-pronged thing is what you just build it out of so they're like okay so those are our building blocks let's see how they're arranged mm. um but again we didn't think that that dna or a lot of people didn't think that dna was the actual genetic material because with so few pieces they didn't understand how that could hold as much information as right. needed to create a living thing. Right. So they thought proteins, which have so many different kinds of amino acids and are so long and, and so their structures are so different, had to be the thing that was holding that information because they're just so, so much more complex. So yeah, it was just the year before that they were like, hey, guess what, you guys? We, we proved that DNA is what has genetic material in it. It's called the Hershey Chase experiment. We, we will talk about that in an upcoming episode. But yeah, so they only just had figured that out. Huh. So they did know the relative abundances of these different building blocks. So they had some information. But yeah, it was the x-ray crystallography pictures that were giving them um, kind of the the amount of space that there must have been between them. So they're mm-hmm. like, oh, well, this must have this many angstroms, you know, a, a nanometers apart, you know. So they were just had, it was just like putting together a puzzle, like literally. They're like, well, here are all the pieces we have. And we have to make it so that this X-ray crystallography picture looks like makes sense. Mm. So yeah, they wouldn't have been able to do it, and definitely wouldn't have been able to prove it without X-ray crystallography. So, and that brings me to my next point. So when they published it on April twenty fifth, is when the actual article in Nature had their structure, mm-hmm. their proposed structure. And there's a tiny footnote on their paper that says that it was. Uh, stimulated by general knowledge of Franklin and Wilkins. There's like this very small little footnote. Um, And then in the same edition of Nature, just after their model of DNA, was a paper by Wilkins and a paper by Rosalind that almost looked like they were, oh, here's the evidence for it. Kind of like, oh, here, let's strategically, yeah. So it really, it wouldn't have had any legs if it hadn't been for Rosalind Franklin's data, because otherwise it would have just been like, just like Rosalind said, oh, it's, it's a pretty model, mm-hmm. but can you prove that that's actually what it is? It's a it, at the, to Rosalind, it was just like at that point a suggestion because they didn't have enough data. Right. I mean, she knew it was a double helix, and she had the data too, and she was working on it as well. But, but she just thought they were kind of jumping the gun. It sounds like. Yeah. Like, well, well can you prove it? Prove it. Prove it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So it, got, it gets. So that was a, an interesting editorial decision. Yeah. They're like we'll just fit these yeah. puzzle pieces together, but the science is not actually. Yeah. Like let's we'll prove it later, and they did. And that's why they did win the Nobel in '62 mm-hmm. was because in the years following, with more and more and more data, it really did support that model. Um, but again, it probably wouldn't have even gone in Nature at all if Nature didn't also have that paper of 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 Franklin's and end of Wilkins that had some data to back it up. Interesting, because otherwise, yeah, it's just it's just it's a very good idea or a suggestion. So was Roz angry about this? I would be angry. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. 
I mean, there is there was a, a biography written by her friend mm-hmm. whose name is uh, was Anne Sayer S A Y R E. Okay. And uh, some people say that she kind of editorialized a little bit, but as a friend of hers, I'm sure I'm sure that she had to know, you know, that it did did bother her. I can't see how it couldn't. Mm-hmm. After everything, it must have just been kind of like a little bit of salt in the wounds. But she didn't appear to let it bother her a whole lot because at Burbeck, she just got right back to work and was prolific for the last five years of her life. Oh. Because, spoiler alert, she died very, very young. Wow. She must have been how old? 37. No. Yeah. Bummer. So here, so here's the deal. So she goes to Burbeck after they publish, you know, around the same time that they publish. Uh-huh their model of DNA, she starts working on an RNA virus called the uh, tobacco mosaic virus, which is kind of a, it's like a lot of different things. There's like E. coli is kind of what a lot of people work with if they work with bacteria. Like it's, they're always like the workhorses of the lab. It's like, oh, mice <laughs> or <laughs> what are our Drosophila flies or yeah. um, the tobacco mosaic virus was like the workhorse of viruses. And it was the first virus to be discovered. It was, it was, it's really easy to uh, to grow because it just people had known about it for a long time because it really it affects tobacco plants and mm. it you know is this discoloration on the leaves so it's really easy to just to just get a whole sample of it doesn't affect animals you don't have to worry about it uh, hurting you so yeah it was like the virus workhorse so she publishes seventeen papers about the tobacco mosaic virus and she kind of laid the foundation for virology to the study of viruses i mean she this this girl is just crazy (laughs) this woman like she's like oh i'll just learn all about coal and kind of set the tone for that whole field and i'll just you know figure it'll help figure out what dna looks like and i'm just gonna figure out viruses now so only lived 37 years but still accomplished a whole lifetime's worth of work in that time yeah and then uh, that there was a Nobel Prize given for that work, too, that went to her partner. What was his name again? Oh, Aaron Klug. So she worked with a guy named Aaron Klug. He got the Nobel. Let me see. When was it? 82. So 62 was the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the structure of DNA. 82, the Nobel Prize for all this virus research. But uh, our dear friend Roz died in April of 1958. So she was named a neither one. Correct, because Nobels don't go to dead people. <sighs> I really don't understand. We talked you know about this what, before though? because, you know, we're yeah. talking about Curie and Pierre didn't get one because yeah. he had died too. I just don't understand. <laughs> I looked it up later and apparently they have awarded some um, after the person died. What? I, I, I believe so, but like not a whole lot. It's like the... Very, very rare exception. Huh. And I think they've only started to do it recently, meaning, you know, within the past like quarter century or so. So maybe because of all this, yeah, like people missing out, yeah. they, they finally decided to change the rules a little bit. I don't know. I yeah. don't I don't know how hard and fast that rule is anymore or, you know, if they still try to stick to it. But yeah. So she got ovarian cancer. Uh, she she worked up until two weeks before she died. So she, and she, she realized it actually when she was on a trip to the U.S. and she was having this great time and she started getting all this pain, went to the doctor. She tried a, an experimental chemotherapy. I think she was, yeah, she had a 10 month remission, but then it came back and, and took her. So obviously I'm sure the x-rays didn't help any of this. Maybe she might've been uh, already prone to it for all we know. But uh, I got to tell you, when I first heard about Rosalind or learned about her, it was when I was taking AP biology, when I was a senior in high school, I had taken, you know, 
regular biology as a freshman and learned about Watson and Crick, learned about the discovery and saw the picture of them looking up at their model, you know. Um, But we never, I don't think Rosalind Franklin was in my biology textbook, the one that I used my freshman year. Yeah, I was, when you told me that this was what the episode was going to be about, I racked my brains. I could not think of ever learning about her. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I I didn't go into the sciences in college, but I did take AP, you know, science Mm -hmm. courses in high school. And yeah, I mean, I could have possibly forgotten it, but I remember the picture of Watson and Crick in the textbook mm-hmm. with their model. Do you remember her picture, the picture of the x-ray crystallography picture? I don't think I do. I would have to look it up and it's see. It's the one, you might remember it. It's basically, there's kind of a, a, a dark circle in the middle, like a splotch. And then there's an X made out of, uh, of little kind of rectangles, little bands. There's an X coming out and then it's surrounded by a circle of, of dark kind of at the edges. Okay, okay. I'm looking at a picture Does that now. that look familiar? That looks familiar. So, But I don't recognize so yeah, that, her face. Yeah, so maybe they didn't. I mean, my, my textbook my senior year had a sidebar about her. And that was when I learned about her. And my teacher, you know, was talking about her too. And I remember, A, feeling really almost betrayed that I didn't know about her sooner, mm-hmm. uh, it, that I didn't know about her the first time I took biology. And then when I found out that she died of ovarian cancer... Oh God, I was so sad. It just, oh, it just tugged on my heartstrings. It was like, she was, you know, this, this awesome scientist. She's a, she's a woman. It's, you know, it's at the time when that was really, really hard and she got mistreated for it, all this stuff. And then she dies of a, of a woman specific cancer. Yeah. I think if she had died of any other cancer, it would have been like, oh, that's really, but some, for some reason, when it, oh, and she died of ovarian cancer, I was like, God. Betrayed by no. lady bits. Yeah. Oh god, I just oh it killed me. And then um, uh, when I taught high school biology, I wanted my students to know about Rosalind Franklin. That was really important to me. Yeah. So when I was telling them the story, because their t- textbook didn't really cover it very much either. Hmm. Um, it's probably the same textbook. Yeah. Oh my god. I think our textbooks were pretty old. Oh, it was so annoying. They're like, DNA? What is that? Yeah, they were They were not like, when I was student teaching at middle school, our textbooks had never been used. So they were, you know, quote unquote new, but they were 10 years old. So they were totally out of date. Yeah. Oh, so, you know what? Science textbooks, history textbooks, a, li- a little larger, you know, margin bearer there. Yeah. Science, science biology, come on. You got to update oh that. Oh my God. Anyway. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, the high school ones weren't that bad, but it, there wasn't much about her. So I told them this story. I told them about her being a scientist at this time where not a lot of women were scientists and, and how the photo was, was shown without her, without her knowledge. And it was just kind of, just kind of, I don't know, like we said, it was kind of sketchy. Yeah. It was just, it's icky. And, um, you know, and teenagers have a very strong sense of fairness, you know, teen- <laughs> teenagerdom is rough because you're still subject to kid rules, but also adult rules. You're kind of caught in between. So there, this idea that's not fair is something that, you know, teen, I said it a lot as a teenager. I was like, yeah. wait a minute. you know. So justice is an issue with teenagers. So I kind of knew that it was really going to strike that nerve when I told them the story. So I, I really kind of played up the drama. I said, think about this. How would you feel? I was just really trying to put them in that place. Yeah. And I think I did too good of a job. <laughs> Because months later, we were just kind of reviewing some of the you know the big points of the year, and I said something about Watson and Crick. And um, do we do we have a bleep button ready? <laughs> we will make one. Yes. So <laughs> I said, okay. So who are Watson and Crick? And one of my students, one of, uh, one of my boys, said, oh, like he was all mad. He's like, oh, he's they're the. 
that took Franklin's photo of DNA. And I went, um, <laughs> yes. okay. You're like, full credit. I, but... I swear, I just, I didn't know. I would love to see what my face had done at that moment. I was like, uh, yes, I suppose. I would, I would chalk this up to a teaching success. I'm glad you said that because I've always felt a little weird about it. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, and I, I don't feel particularly guilty because, of course, one of them went on to say horrible, horrible things later. So these are not... One of Watson and Crick, not one of your students. Oh, yes. <laughs> Watson and Crick, yes. Um, so they're not exactly uh, role models. Yeah. So I don't feel super, super bad about it. I mean, should we go into detail about what what our friend Watson said? Yeah, let's. I mean, well, this is this is Roz's episode, but if you want to devote some a brief moment to describing, you know, I mean, there were things in case. In, I mean, I'll I'll let people do their research because yeah, I don't want to take a whole lot of the the spotlight away from awesome Roz. But just to illustrate the the forces that she was up against, but yeah, and the but mentality. Watson Watson said basically things that were very eugenics kind of Hitlerish about how there, some races are better than others. I mean, really, really terrible things. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't feel quite after, so bad. After. Oh, this is, this is decades later. World War II. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. Come so just on. in, con- not that it makes it any better, but you know, after World War II and people are like, oh, this whole eugenics thing didn't really, didn't really work out. This <laughs> led down, this led us down a bad path, but he, you know, he doubled down. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. So anyway, yeah, he's so he's one of those Nobel embarrassing stories. <laughs> I feel like we're probably going to run into more of these. Yeah, he doesn't get invited to brunch is what I'm saying. <laughs> they're, Goodbye. They're both not invited. But anyway, so Rosalind, luckily, a lot of people have felt that she was really treated poorly mm-hmm. and that the whole thing was handled really poorly. So she luckily has had some some good uh recognition since then okay and when when james uh watson published his book the 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 double helix his memoir in 1968 so just a couple years after his nobel which is like dude take it easy just like write it later oh my god um so the two people that really wrote essentially rebuttals were one aaron clug who worked with her Mm -hmm. at at birkbeck and um, on the viruses and her friend Ann Sayer, who wrote a biography about it later, which is like, that's not really how it happened because Watson yeah. kind of wanted to gloss over it, of course, saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, we saw her photos. Everything's cool. She was cool with it. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's dead. Can't defend herself. Yeah. yeah. So so people have definitely made sure that, you know, here here she is. That's nice. And we're talking about her now. So that's good. But and she is she has become something of a poster uh, poster woman. I don't want to say poster child. She's not a child. Poster <laughs> child, poster woman of uh, an awesome, brilliant scientist who did not get the recognition she deserved while she was alive, which is not specific to women. I mean, Gregor Mendel, right. no one gave a crap about him until he was dead either. So, you know. But it probably happened probably a bit more often with women yeah. minorities I mean, in general. Being kind of written out of the story, I think, is what people yeah. really have a reaction to, because yeah. that is not fair. Well, that would have happened to Marie Curie if it hadn't been for Pierre mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. being like, no, no, she is not mm-hmm. an assistant. She is doing the research, and in yeah. every one of his talks, he made a point to like bring her up and say, "No, it's it's her. Yeah, it's not me. Yeah. So yeah, even she had. I mean, I I, I question whether or not we would know anything about her mm-hmm. if it hadn't been for him, mm-hmm. which sucks. Yeah. So yeah, Roz. Roz, I salute you. Let's I mean, in, let's invite her to brunch, Marie. We'll bring a whole gang. Yeah, totally. <laughs> oh my god. But yeah, I I felt so 
so deeply this the the wrongness of of that stuff that I seriously was like, man, if I have a daughter, I should name her Rosalind just because I really <laughs> I don't know. I just feel this kinship with her for some reason. I just really feel like we still have to do more to right that wrong. Yeah. Because she did some awesome stuff. She was a brilliant scientist. She was I just I just love that story about her when she was a kid. She was like just on it. Oh, she deserves so much more Dangerously smart. Roz. <laughs> and I'm going to call her Roz from now on. Yeah. Now that I know. Yeah, if, you, if you had a daughter and you named her Rosalind, you could not call her Rosie. And you would have to like smack down anyone who did. Her name and is explain not why. Rosie. And they'd be like, oh, this nerd is weird. I know. <laughs> it's like, stop it. But yeah. But so I would definitely have her over for brunch. She sounds like she was pretty darn cool yeah. and i really like people that are to the point that don't kind of beat her on the bushes i mean yeah. and i don't mean that she was um when people say that you're to the point or just kind of yeah dry, i mean it sounds like you just say things that are rude or like you don't have an editing mechanism or something but no she was just very very real very and, down and to in earth. women it can often read as you know yeah we won't say it but yes. you know what i'm saying um but yeah, so that's that's unfair. Like yeah. if she had been a guy, I'm sure that never would have been an issue probably. Yeah. So. But no, I love people that are just like, oh, that's weird or whatever. Just like, well, let's just do this. Why are you doing it that way? Oh, that's true. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I really like that. Thank you. Thanks, Roz. Yeah. <laughs> I just love her so much. And I'm really glad that all my students love her too. And also <laughs> don't like the other guys. And remember, I, I like to think that now, you know, years later or like years into the future, someone brings up Watson and Crick and the same student yeah, will like jump up. It's like, dude, and just repeat. let me tell you about those guys. <laughs> and then everyone is just like, what is happening? <laughs> no, it's good. They remembered. Mm-hmm. That's a good job, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, we're going to end this episode of Science Brunch. Thank you so much for joining us. We're at sciencebrunch.org. Please remember to subscribe in iTunes and review and comment and rate and all that stuff. Hit us up on Twitter and send us pictures of your Science Brunch hashtag. Yes, indeed you do. And next time we're going to be talking about Albert Einstein. Albert. Albert. Albie. Albie. Oh, Albie. Bye now.